Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. Hope you're having a great weekend and hopefully you're ready for baseball, just like I am. Things aren't off to a really great start, but we'll see if things can pick up a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about a controversy that has been brewing in Illinois. And it's it's kind of a parallel to what's going on in our state. And this has to do with how we treat cash in the bail slash bond process in our criminal proceedings. And in Illinois, there's been a um, push for something called the Safe Act, S-A-F-E-T Act. And what they're seeking to do, and still uh, a bit murky as to what is going to happen, is the idea of eliminating the use of cash bail. And I want to talk about this because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding because this topic has been brought up in various states. New Jersey, for example, did actually eliminate uh quote-unquote, eliminate cash bail um, earlier this year. And various states are looking at ways to reform how cash is used in this process. Now, to be clear, a lot of uh, opponents of this uh, idea state that it would result in basically everybody going free if they're uh, being detained for some kind of crime. And... The other side of this issue points out that it won't necessarily result in more people uh, being free on bond. It would simply take away cash as an element. So, and this is similar to the way proposals have worked. The genesis of this idea is that when cash is part of the process, and this is true, uh, it is something that can keep a lower income person without many assets or any assets in custody, whereas somebody who has funds, sometimes even through ill-gotten gains, uh, has the ability to get out. And there is a disparity there. And it's it's a somewhat of a random factor in the process. Now, in Wisconsin, as you know, we have traditionally viewed cash bail, cash bond, as something to ensure that a defendant appears in court in the future, because if they don't appear, then they can forfeit that money that they've posted. But we are, of course, talking about adjusting that so that many more factors can be considered other than just someone's flight risk. So what's going on in Illinois is that the two sides of this controversy are that Yes, on the one side, the proponents of this uh, Safety Act would um, like to see cash not a consideration, but other factors as to whether or not a person gets released. The problem with that position is that it would consider such things as, is this a violent act? Is it a crime against uh, where people are victims? And so on. And whereas in the past, one might be able to post some kind of bond or a lower or a low amount of bond, it's theoretically possible that that person would not be able to be released at all. Now, does that kind of level the playing field based on someone's income level? Sure. 
but it also kind of opens up the doors for the very thing that we don't want to have happen, which is the district attorneys, the prosecutors, having basically complete control over someone's custody status without the possibility of raising funds to get out. So it's fraught with problems. And I've always thought that these notions of adjusting the cash bail system are worthy of consideration, but it has to be done in such a way so that it doesn't replace it with something that results in more people being incarcerated pre-trial. So, you know, essentially what the problem could end up being here if it's adopted uh, in other states or in our own is that we have a situation where we're giving more power to those that make decisions about charging. And theoretically, all you'd have to do if you want someone to stay in custody is charge a crime that fits within whatever guidelines there are or, or are established. And again, that's more bureaucratic levels of government that determine someone's custody status. I mean, it used to be very firmly stated in the law and implemented that there is a strong preference towards not being in custody while the case is pending. But over the years, the the trend has been, as we've seen, that more and more cases result in somebody sitting in custody while they've been uh, merely accused and not convicted of anything. So that's a, that's a part of our process that we seek to avoid because of the fact that the justice system, the justice process, obviously takes time. We have an overburdened system, not enough judges, not enough prosecutors, and certainly not enough defense lawyers uh, that are able to handle the influx of the various charging decisions. We've also seen a very strong trend towards charging crimes without a full analysis of what the real evidence or provable or usable evidence is in a case. And since the advent of Marcy's Law, believe it or not, we've seen a lot of cases, many, many cases, where someone who's identified as a quote-unquote victim uh, has their wishes, although, you know, on the theory that they're being honored, they're actually being ignored. And I've talked about this in the show before, but um, we see many, many cases where somebody who uh, is identified as a quote-unquote victim in the process uh, comes in and says, I really don't want this case to go forward. I really would like these charges to be dismissed. And oftentimes the district attorney will say, well, thanks very much for your input, but we believe that we know better than you do as to what's right here. And in the name of defending victims, they are forcing people to go forward with cases that they basically object to. So all of this adds up to what is going to be an ongoing mess. And when we continue to have cases that draw media attention because somebody was out on bond and they do something bad, then it just focuses that energy towards trying to fix things, uh, fix particular incidents with uh, changes in the law. You know, the same argument comes up 
from a different perspective as it relates to gun regulation because every time we see a mass shooting or something that would logically cause our country and our legislators to look at what can be done, the two sides of the argument are how can we keep letting this happen versus the side that says isolated incidents don't call for massive restructuring of our legal system and uh, you know what, what our laws are. And that's, that is a good point. It just depends on what the issue is as far as how it gets advocated, because that same argument should apply to uh, increasing the number of people that remain in custody while there's uh, a case pending. The other thing is that if our system operated in such a way that things could be done with quickly, this wouldn't be such an issue. You know, if the inconvenience on someone's life was minimal because the process could occur efficiently and with um, appropriate attention being given to each case, then the burden on that person is, is much, much less. But we see cases that are pending for sometimes years. Now, of course, a lot of that has had to do with the fact that our court system was sh virtually shut down for a period of time during uh, the pandemic, but in spite of that, there's still a very lengthy burdensome process. A lot of people out there have the view that we should be reviewing all of the things that do make this process longer. The easy ones to address in terms of cause and effect are funding issues, but there are people that believe that it's the rights of a defendant that make this process longer than it should be. And I've heard that argument made that because someone has the right to counsel, it takes a long time. Because someone has the right to see the evidence against them, they have to take the extra time to give the evidence to the defendant to know what exactly the evidence is. And all of these, both statutory and constitutional requirements, result in a much more complicated process. Well, that's the nature of our rights, and they must be both enforced and exercised in order to keep our system and our country free. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. I'm going to switch gears here and talk about marijuana <laughs> again. But uh, there was a report recently that came out that discusses the tax revenue that has been coming in, both Michigan and Minnesota, our neighboring states, and we can add to that Illinois as well. But um, this report talked about how Illinois and Michigan have raked in hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue on recreational marijuana sales last year. Um, so, and, and you know, Minnesota is planning to be to have fully full legalization. Uh, Wisconsin sits on an island of cannabis prohibition, surrounded by states with legal weed. But as medical marijuana inches towards legislation in the state, experts say policymakers would have the benefit of hindsight from the states who went first, and that is absolutely true. So, think about it this way: other states, many other states, not just our neighbors, um, have come up with the idea that since a lot of people number one, use marijuana whether it's legal or not uh, 
since uh, the way that people get marijuana in states where it's illegal is by illegal means, such as drug dealers, importation of drugs, smuggling of drugs, uh, hiding assets, cash transactions, etc. And since a lot of our law enforcement dollars are spent enforcing crimes that don't really have any victims involved, we're taking away from our law enforcement resources that should be directed towards making our uh, society safer and not dealing with a plant that grows in the ground that happens to make some people happy. Um, But I want you to think about it this way, too. We're talking about millions of dollars that are going towards building the roads in Michigan, uh, improving their tax economy, improving their schools, um, appropriate allocations towards their justice process that they're seeking to bolster with these these excess funds. And that's all great, but you got to remember a lot of that money, a lot of those dollars that are being uh, sent to Michigan are coming from Wisconsin because people are traveling to other states because it's marijuana is legal there. So money that should be within our state's economy that could be taxed and could be kept within our economy is being sent out to other states. That's money that we could have, that we should have, that should be kept here. But it's going other places because of this. Um, You know, there's been controversy out there about how these tax dollars get used. But I'd make the one simple point that if this is all done through legitimate, above-board business transactions with actual proprietors that have a store and they register as a business, they're part of the regulatory scheme to make sure that things are being done properly. And the revenue is above-board and appropriately taxed so that all of that revenue is remains part of the economy instead of uh, behind the scenes cash transactions. It also, if we had a national law that dealt with this, would have the potential to really cut off the whole drug dealing process at its knees. Now, obviously, we have a lot of other problems and We really do need to be focusing on addressing fentanyl, other drugs, opiates, things like that in an aggressive way. But to be wasting our time on something that you can drive across the border and buy, uh, it, it just seems ludicrous to me. So in spite of all the objections that this is something that Uh, the people of Wisconsin don't support, not true, by the way, and that it's dangerous. I mean, alcohol is much more dangerous. You know that. Um, Cigarettes are dangerous, too. We just, for some reason, keep holding on to this idea that we have to tell people what's good for them, what's not good for them, and this particular substance, for whatever reason, remains in that category in our state, but not in surrounding states. Other states are really reaping the benefits of this entire um, 
trend that's going on. People have pointed out that uh, some states have been experiencing some problems with the advent of legalization. There have been some studies suggesting that there's been, if not an increase, at least a shift in attention to you know impairment-related offenses uh, relating to driving and so forth. Um, statistically speaking, it's, it's believed that without any real solid study that can uh, back this up one way or the other, but it's, it's believed that there are not a significantly larger number of people that are um, operating vehicles while impaired due to the legalization of marijuana where it has become legal. And we've talked about this on the show before, but we have a lot of things built into our, our culture, our understanding as to what impairment is, what the dangers are, what the risks are. And a lot of that is is basically focused on what alcohol does to people and, and our envisioning um, that type or that form of impairment. And there have been studies on this. There's one very important study that came from England that talks about the fact that when people become impaired by ethanol, it's a particular type of impairment. When people are impaired by tetrahydrocannabinols, the active ingredient in marijuana, it's a different form of impairment and has a different effect on the person who's impaired. Impairment isn't just universal across the board. It's not like you can say one type of impairment is the same as any other type of impairment. And that's true for really think about all the different ways that various different medications or the lack of sleep or being hungry or being angry or in a fight with your significant other, all these things that can quote unquote impair you. But the problem with alcohol is that as one becomes impaired, their awareness of impairment doesn't match the actual impairment. So especially when we're talking about at those levels of 0 0.08, 0 0.09, 0.10 grams per 100 milliliters of blood, they've done self-reporting you know, studies and dosing studies where people in that range do not believe that they are impaired, but they are legally impaired because 0 0.08 is our limit. And that is where, scientifically speaking, the line has been drawn because of uh, actuarial data that supports the notion that when one is at that level, it is more dangerous to be operating a motor vehicle. So we have this gap. Now, at a certain point, when one consumes enough alcohol, they should be aware of their impairment. But we also know that that type of impairment severely inhibits or affects one's judgment. And we see it all the time, where someone is extremely impaired but they, for whatever reason, want to drive or need to drive or th for some crazy reason still think it's okay because that is what ethanol does to people uh, as a reaction. The study in England showed that when people become impaired by THC, their awareness of impairment is much more accurate. In other words, one is aware of the fact that they should not be driving much more quickly and much more accurately than when that same situation is presented by ethanol. So we have a process whereby it's 
legal for people to consume alcohol. It is a much more dangerous substance, much more toxic, and in fact creates these situations that we still haven't found a very good way of dealing with, which is that when one becomes impaired, they they either lack the awareness of impairment or their judgment is so bad that they believe that they could or should be driving under those circumstances. When one is aware that they are impaired, normally, at least in a THC situation, people tend to not want to drive, not want to go out and do something that would be risky or dangerous, depending upon uh, how it affects that person. And yes, it does affect different people in different ways. But it's if we're going to live in a society where you can legally drink alcohol and stay home, uh, it makes no sense to have a different standard as it relates to something that is, at least with regard to awareness of impairment, theoretically safer on that level. All right, we'll end up talking about this much more, I'm sure, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Not sure if you heard, but... Earlier this week, Adnan Syed's conviction was reinstated. And it's kind of an odd series of events because the many, many years that led up to his case being dismissed um, and him being set free uh, were based upon the status of the evidence problems with the way that things were both investigated and information that had been turned over to the defense. And you remember Adnan Syed. He was the subject of the podcast Serial, and there have been movies and TV shows that have followed this very, very um, complicated uh, murder case. And uh, over the years, as you know, we reported on this show, and it's been all over the news media, that due to those problems with the case that have finally been cumulatively recognized, um, the court found that his conviction cannot be sustained and ordered that the conviction be reversed and he be set free. Now, normally, um, that's not the kind of thing that necessarily is vulnerable to an appeal, and especially in this case where the prosecution was basically agreeing with the court's philosophy and urging the court to do the same thing. Um, you know, if the if the state is asking for the same thing that the defense is asking for, no one's going to appeal it, right? And it's oftentimes something that has been heavily litigated, heavily investigated, and a lot of work has gone into that outcome. But um, it just so happens that one of the victim's relatives, a brother, I believe, in that case had been given one business day's notice, is how it was reported in the paper. So that sounds to me like uh, the person was notified on a Thursday that there would be a hearing on a Monday. And he claims that he didn't have time to gather his thoughts and to prepare for um, this hearing to state any objection that he might have had. Which, by the way, he did state an objection. He was allowed to be heard, but he's saying that it wasn't enough time uh, to be able to formally put it together in that sense. 
so in, in a very strange twist, the court uh, earlier this week decided that, okay, because of the fact that this person hadn't been given adequate opportunity to state an objection, the whole thing has to start all over again. Not not back decades and decades, but the hearing at which Syed's conviction was thrown out now has to happen again. And kind of interesting because, at least with regard to our version of Marcy's Law in this state, um, it talks about the opportunity to be heard, the opportunity to be present, the opportunity to have your input considered, the opportunity to have an advocate, but nowhere does it say that an alleged victim has the right to basically stop the proceedings dead in their tracks because of those considerations. And that was one thing that when Marcy's Law was, you know, discussed as to what should be in it, that it can't be something that completely reverses the way that the process works. We still do have a formal structure. We have the burdens of proof. We have the law. And the law has to be supreme over these other considerations. Really, what Marcy's Law was designed to do was to incorporate appropriate considerations for people that are victims and witnesses of crime so that they feel um, that they are more involved in the process and that their their rights as created, actually in our Constitution now, um, are appropriately respected and addressed. But none of that is supposed to take the place of the law, the other laws, because Marcy's Law is law, of course. And by the way, there is still um, ongoing momentum in Wisconsin, and we've seen it in other states, that is challenging the manner in which Marcy's Law had been passed. If you remember, it appeared on the ballot, and it's interesting that this happened because the same exact thing happened, I believe, in Montana, where they had a version of Marcy's Law that they put on the ballot, very, very similar to what happened here in Wisconsin. And because it it simply stated, would you support a constitutional amendment to protect the rights of victims and witnesses in the criminal process? And it was worded in such a way that it didn't explain the details, the impact that it would have potentially on the justice process or on defendants' rights, existing constitutional rights. And in that state, it was overturned because the manner in which it appeared on the ballot was misleading. For some reason, even after that had been thrown out, the same exact process occurred here in Wisconsin with the same, same, you know, uh, procedure whereby the question appeared on the ballot. It was worded in such a way so that an obvious near 100% majority of people would say yes, not knowing the details of what it really entailed, or enumerating the actual constitutional provisions. And that's the problem, because when you're talking about changing the Constitution, especially when it's done by referendum, and people are voting, okay, you can't just say, hey, here's the general idea. Do you like it? 
and then have people say, sure, I like that, and then leave it up to somebody else to make the actual words in the Constitution apply. See, that's the problem, because when if it was a regular law, like a statute, they wouldn't just have a vote in the state legislature or assembly that says, hey, we've got this general idea that we want a, this certain thing to happen. Everyone all right with that? And they all say, aye. And then you leave it up to the people that came up with the idea to spell out the exact language. No. When a bill comes before a legislative body, they argue over commas, use of particular words, how many paragraphs or sentences it should have, reordering of things, how the how headings work, what section number it falls under in the statutes, all this stuff that gets debated, goes through committees, there's, there's legislative fiscal updates on all of these processes, and it's, it's the minutia of detail that something works its way through that causes it to be, you know, not only scrubbed appropriately, but concerns, especially in committees, about what the impact of this is on the entire state. So by doing it, in the form of that referendum, it bypasses all of that process. I mean, imagine if Congress wanted to make another amendment to the Constitution, the United States Constitution, and just said, hey, we want to make, uh, you know, popcorn the national food of the United States of America. You like that? And then have people vote on it. And then they, you know, then... As part of the Constitution, they work in all these provisions whereby popcorn manufacturers get extra funding because that's our national snack food. And uh, people that want to start up these businesses can get tax breaks and forgiveness loans and all kinds of things that was not part of what was actually voted on. So you see the problem with the process here. Um it was a very popular idea and remains a very popular idea, but it was not actually vetted in terms of the true impact. And as one who practices in the arena of uh, representing people accused of crimes, I can tell you that this has not made the process any better for any victims involved in the process. It tends to actually exacerbate the frustration because it's not well thought out. And there isn't a very good job uh, or process that even exists for explaining what um, this all means because it's not meant to derail everything else that is there. In fact, it's very important that we remember that the prosecution needs to be able to make determinations if they believe they can't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt and you have somebody that says, I don't care, I want this case prosecuted, that it can't work that way. Because that runs into a problem with separation of powers. You see, because people, the people, yes, they're represented by the state in a prosecution only in the sense that the executive branch enforces the laws, but they don't make the laws, but the legislature makes the laws. So we're, we're kind of mixing up this whole process when we do all this all right we'll be back back after these messages welcome back well i'm sure you all know we've got an election coming up later this week and 
If you don't know that, you must be living under a rock. And actually, I envy you. (laughs) Because the only reason you wouldn't know that there's an election coming up on April 4th is if you don't watch television, listen to the radio, read the newspaper, or all of those things where we get information, I put that in air quotes, um, about candidates. And this election cycle with the Wisconsin Supreme Court race has reached an all-time high, or should I say all-time low, as it relates to attack ads. And it's bringing back the controversy about whether we should be electing Supreme people in the highest court in our state. Because, you know, they don't do that in federal court. They don't do that in the United States Supreme Court. They don't do it in any federal district courts or federal courts of appeals. There's an appointment process because it is supposed to be non-political. Supposed to be. I know that it is. But the point being that in our state and many others, um, we do elect our highest courts. And... I'm sure you've noticed what's occurred. Uh, The ads are not based on the merit of any particular candidate. They're based on attacking the opponent. And both of the candidates that are up for Supreme Court are guilty of doing the same thing, which is spending millions of dollars to put an ad out there that attacks the opponent. And first of all, It's insulting to the public that someone's vote is going to be based on how many millions of dollars a candidate can gather and spend, either through their own campaign or through political action committees. And by the way, there's no limit on how much a PAC can spend. They just can't coordinate with a particular campaign, but it's very obvious. They can throw an attack ad out there, and then it's obvious when there's only two candidates who they're affiliated with and so on. But when when the meat of these ads becomes uh, a message that the other person who's running is a terrible person, can't be trusted, etc., etc., it, it's sending us, the public, the message that we're not going to take the time to actually look at the candidates and their qualifications. I mean, isn't that what it should be about? Their qualifications experience, what types of positions they've had, what they've done in the past, and sure, how they've ruled on various different things. But what somebody did as a circuit court judge or what somebody did as a job, um, you know, in the past, and I'll I'll just point out here, there's an attack ad against uh, Kelly that criticizes him for working as a defense lawyer. Of all things. Um, and there's an, uh, there's an ad against uh, Protosewitz saying that she, when she ruled as a circuit court judge, there are examples where the public might perceive that she was gave an inappropriate sentence without knowing the details of the case, without knowing why, without knowing what the input was, without knowing what the district attorney wanted, without knowing the nuances of any given case. Which again is insulting because in both of those scenarios, what those ads are saying is they're going to pull out some small piece of information, use that as an argument that the their opponent is 
not qualified for whatever reason, and bypassing the process that should occur, which is we, as responsible voters, need to do our homework. So it's insulting because it assumes that, number one, you're not going to do your homework, and number two, that you're going to be so easily swayed by 30 seconds worth of stuff that's thrown at you on television in a commercial break. Um, yeah, that is insulting. I mean, the reason that we support democracy and the general idea of electing officials is so that the people have a voice. And if you're going to exercise that right, which is very important that you do, does it, does it take a whole lot of, um, you know, extra effort just to, to educate yourself on who you should vote for? Do we do they really believe that people are so lazy and so susceptible to emotional um, advertising that they're just going to not exercise their right to vote responsibly? Yeah, that's what they're telling us. And when these attack ads are permitted, and when it becomes something where, again, the message is, we know you're not going to really vote on the merits of who's better qualified, or we know you're not actually going to look into this. We want to scare you into voting a certain way. That's what it comes down to. And what do we do in Wisconsin to try and alleviate that? Well, we say that our elections are nonpartisan for that office, and they are. There are no Democrats, there are no Republicans, there are no Green parties, there are none of that. Um, but it becomes very obvious that um, the mentality or, you know, quote-unquote affiliation, although not official, um, is, is represented in many of these ads. And why do we have nonpartisan elections? Because politics are supposed to have no role whatsoever in a Supreme Court justice's even-handed delivery of uh, opinions and justice. So I pointed this out before in prior elections, but uh, when both sides say that people who do bad things deserve to be punished harshly, and that when by doing something that our system requires and couldn't operate without doing, on the one hand, being a defense lawyer, you cannot have a criminal justice system without defense lawyers. So criticizing someone for being one is ridiculous. And on the other hand, someone who, if you cherry pick a few decisions or sentences that someone handed down as a uh, circuit court judge and try and use that as ammunition to argue to the public that they're not tough enough on crime, both are doing the same thing which is tapping into uh, people's fear of crime. Now, think about this. If a Supreme Court justice is faced with a case where there's a very clear violation of a defendant's constitutional rights, let's say the, the law cannot be viewed any other way and the facts cannot be viewed any other way that a would-be convicted murderer had his or her Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Fourth Amendment rights violated, and the record establishes that. Is that so-called tough-on-crime judge going to say, well, 
yes, those rights have been violated, and yes, the law says that this evidence should be suppressed, but I'm a tough-on-crime judge, so I'm going to look the other way. That, that's, that's not right. That isn't how it's supposed to work. A judge is supposed to have, a justice is supposed to have the guts, the strength of character, the, you know, when we see in courtrooms and other depictions of Lady Justice, she's blind. She has a blindfold on when she's holding the scales of justice. And what that represents is that um, the law is supposed to be interpreted as the law. And you're not supposed to think about, well, if this person's rights were violated, then the law demands that the conviction be overturned. I don't want to do that because I told all the people that voted for me that I'm going to be tough on crime and they might not like me. Um, and then then you have to run for re-election after 10 years. So it, you see the problem with um, electing these officials. I know I've said this before and I'll say it again. It, it's a very difficult problem because in those states where they do have appointments and in our federal system, it has its own series of problems. And sometimes people that have that system say they wish that their officials could be elected instead of appointed. So no matter how you have it, it has its own set of problems. But, you know, there was a time when advertisements of this nature were not allowed. In fact, for, for a number of reasons, and it was a very, I think, um, wise policy, because the millions and millions and millions of dollars that end up getting funneled into this uh, advertising is all money that's leaving our economy and going towards radio advertising. Okay, I get it that it is um, enhancing the uh, those that charge for advertising, whether it's your TV service provider or others. Yeah, I guess that's still in our economy, but the vast majority of those funds that people are paying for, you know, why would you donate to a candidate? Well, because you want to support that candidate or you have a particular reason why you want that candidate to be in office, right? So when advertising of that nature was not allowed, we we weren't pouring millions of dollars like out of our economy and out of the way that people spend money on normal things. Anyway, it's all the time we have for this week, please tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.